first on film and entertainment, and we have got a couple of big movies that we're going to talk about. My name's Alex First. Joining me, Peter Krause. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, Good Dave morning, Griffiths, everyone. that is. G'day. Dave, nice to have you with us as well. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Peter. How are you both going? Now, we, we need to talk about the fact that there's been all sorts of things happening, notably, obviously, the World Cup, which has you know, been going along, and all these surprises and shocks, and that's fantastic. Uh, the cricket, I can't say, Dave, has been all that surprising. It's gone down. If you, you've looked at the last few occasions that we've played the West Indies in Australia, and apart from one year when it was sort of rained out the first match, we've always scored around the five to 600 mark in the first innings. Now, the difficulty here is that not enough people turn up to test cricket anymore, and yet it's the form of the game that I, I love more than any other. What about you? Yeah, I'm the same. I just wonder, is Perth the right stadium to play the first test match of the summer at? Because it's always a, a pitch these days that is a batting paradise, which it didn't used to be uh, when it was at the Wacker. It was always a bowling paradise. But also, I find that the Perth uh, test matches these days, since they've moved to Optus Stadium, are kind of boring. Um, it's just hit, 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 hit. So, mind, I you, whether... mind you, hang, hang on. When we say that, it's fantastic to see two Aussies scoring double centuries. I'm not, I'm not whinging about that. And I thought Travis Head was very unlucky, only to get 99. Uh, true, but the thing is, like, I was on the, the opening day of the test match. I was looking at the score and going well, they're both going well, I'm not going to turn it on TV. At the end of the day, it comes down to television numbers and going along to watch it. And I think people are more entertained when you get a mixture of both wickets and runs. Yeah, but I've got to say to you that when an Aussie's doing well, that means that my eyeballs are peeled and and they are, they are not... I mean, like when I go for a walk or whatever... I'll actually watch the cricket on my phone. I'm that desperate to see. I mean, like Steve Smith, what the guy's reinvented himself. I mean, not that he was he'd gone away forever and a day, but he wasn't as strong last year as the year before. But in terms of the changes to his game, let's just hope it continues because you know it's it's fantastic. I, I you know, to watch him and that it was a chanceless innings. It was that that is really rare, and I thought it was fantastic. And they they upped the tempo. And they were, they were scoring at 10 and over. So it was kind of like a one-day affair or a 2020 game. Yeah, so I, yeah. I must admit I found it pretty exciting. The, um, the other aspect that, of, of sport that I wanted to talk about, it's, it's interesting how every club thinks they're going great guns at this time of the year, every AFL club, right? You've, you've had the draft, you've had the rookie, the B-grade B rookies and whatever all picked I mean, if I if I had to pick out one side that I think's done particularly well in recent times, North Melbourne's turned things around. Obviously, having Alastair Clarkson as coach has made a big difference. There's a there's a lot of enthusiasm around North Melbourne. Have you noticed that? I have, but I, I still have severe issues with their list. I think they're I think they're still going to be a a cellar dweller next season. I I have some really bad feelings about their their list that it's almost a, a Gold Coast list at the moment where there's a few players in there that were borderline at their other teams. I don't think they've recruited as well as what they they should have. They needed to go after some big guns, especially after delisting Jared Pollock and freeing up nearly a million dollars worth of salary cap. 
it's going to be a hell of a test for Alastair Clarkson, isn't it? Because you're right, if you look at their last couple of years, there haven't been that many changes. There have obviously been changes behind the scenes. But, uh, yeah, it'll be, be fascinating. In terms of the, the success story, though, in terms of drafting and what, what the, the pre-season, Geelong would have to, again, you know, what they've done is just amazing. Even though the actual draft, they only picked up sort of one key player, I thought they did a really, really good job. And you guys, what, what, what's Sydney playing at? You, you really put the cat amongst the pigeons and you're just trying to get your own back against GWS, aren't you? Oh, and Adelaide. Adelaide ripped us off for Jordan Dawson, so we made them take a player who was expected to go in the pick 70s in the 20s. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of payback. But also the the Sydney um, list manager did actually defend it and say that those players were on his want list. So, yeah, that's true. He did say that. Yeah. No question about that. Tell me, uh, in terms of the round ball game, you, you heard Graham Arnold's comments about the fact that he's really worried about the future and all of those sorts of things, because obviously there's a great deal of interest now. But do you agree with him that you know it, it's it's a secondary sport in Australia, even though at this time of you know every four years we get very very excited. Yeah, look, I think the biggest issue for soccer in Australia is we still have a very, very weak A-League, and that is shown by the fact that all of our top players go overseas to play. Um, it's And the fact that we're bringing in players now to the A-League that they say are stars, well, they're washed-up stars from overseas competitions, guys that can't get games over there anymore because they're too old. I think we really need to invest money in the A-League and keep those players at home um, as long as we can in order to get people interested in soccer and interested in the Socceroos. But having said that, at the same time, there is a huge push for basketball in Australia and most people wouldn't even be aware that at the moment our boomers are playing in the World Cup of basketball and are absolutely dominating to the point where people are predicting a US versus Australia um final and so far none of the NBA players are even playing for Australia so we're playing with a third fourth string team and dominating in the basketball so I think there's a a real call here in Australia where we need to embrace sports like soccer and basketball that Australia is excelling at but make them more popular amongst Australians and I think the big problem for that is the TV rights um, more and more people don't want to be associated with Foxtel, don't want it on their um, things at home. And therefore, with those sports on Foxtel, people lose interest in the sport because they don't ever get to watch it. But when you think about it, golf as well, even though we've got, you know, a couple of weeks we had the PGA, we had the Open, uh, you know, and, and that's that's fine. But ultimately, that doesn't have the level of interest that it used to have. Once again, we can't attract the really big overseas names. I know that you now got Cameron Smith down here, and I think that's fantastic. But you know, not notwithstanding that, you've got the same issue there. And with soccer, I mean, if you can earn a fortune overseas, why would you stay in Australia? I mean, what's the incentive? That's you what I mean. You need to invest more money in that. And it's something that we're seeing now with AFL and Gridiron. Essendon have lost the two Fletcher boys to go yeah, and play Gridiron in America exactly. because they can get a million dollars a year. Exactly. I would think the same. Yeah. Unless you're going to get the overseas. Like, okay, you look at Channel 10. They're a basket case at the moment. This year has been appalling. They cancelled the Christmas party this year. There was. They said there's nothing to celebrate. 
and you know they're owned by Paramount, right? So, I mean, how are we going to get attract the money to keep these these sports people in the country when other countries have got three hundred million people and more can offer them truckloads? I'm not sure that you can ever solve that as a problem. I think Channel Ten lost a lot when they got rid of their sports channel. When they had their sports channel and were showing US sports 24 hours a day, they had so much more ratings coming in. Once they got rid of that and sold those rights off to Foxtel, I think a lot of people lost interest in the station, and, and which is a shame because Paramount and their American partner actually do show a lot of the American sports overseas. So I think they need to take those rights back off Foxtel put them on Paramount and Channel 10, and Channel 10 might see a huge turnaround in their ratings. Talking about Paramount and talking about films, Peter, what is going on? Usually at this time of the year, there are lots and lots of movies. Now, we have taken a look outside this program, and the next few weeks leading up to Boxing Day is, apart from Avatar, which is a massive release we're all looking forward to, it's relatively slight. Why do you think that is this year? It's still a catch-up from the COVID era. A lot uh, of uh, production and post-production was yeah. either postponed or delayed for various reasons. And uh, so there is a backlog of films that will be completed over the next months, but uh, it's just that we're not seeing them as yet. You don't think this is the influx of streaming services basically dominating the market now and a lot of the frontline actors are voting with their feet, they're getting paid handsomely to do that, and it's not necessarily cinema releases that they're being paid to do. I think that's true, that the streaming services are certainly um, having a, a greater share of market dominance in terms of um, cinema releases or film releases that are going straight to streaming. However, um, the cinema industry is definitely not dead yet, and uh, I think there will be more films being produced and uh, uh, and available uh, in cinemas because cinema is still the best place to see a film. And uh, well, uh, certainly the, now, the big experience. I mean, obviously you can have a big screen at home, but it's not the same as. I mean, I you know I always champion IMAX because I think that's the best experience that you can possibly get, where you're sort of absorbed by the whole thing. Are people more reluctant, though, again, to go out because they're used to sort of sitting at home during COVID and sitting in front of the the box and not having to uh, – and, again, travelling around Melbourne, Peter, you and I have chatted about this many times. It, it's it's a pain in the backside often to sort of – you're travelling for longer than you're seeing the movie. So I think that's got an impact too, doesn't it? Look, all of those uh, situations are in the mix, but I think more and more people are going back to the movies. And, uh, I mean, certainly the Jewish Film Festival did very well, had good audiences, and and there are some films about to be released uh, and have been released which have attracted uh, large audiences. So I think the, the cinema experience doesn't have to be a huge screen, but still the cinema experience uh, is still the preferred way to go. Last night... I went to see Compromat, which is one of the films we're going to be talking about, and I was surprised that there were no more than 10 people in the cinema, and this was at an 8.30 screening. So that that kind of... What, what do you say to that, Dave? I think it really depends on where you go and, and what time. I mean, if like I've said uh, recently, if you go to some of our local um, cinemas on the outskirts of Melbourne, they're packed. In fact, like I said, I had a friend who was trying to get to see um, 
Black Panther when it came out, and he had to wait two weeks to see it because it kept on um, filling up every session he wanted to go to. Um, I even went to a, a mid-morning session this week of um, Pinocchio, the Del Toro version, and there was about 30 people in the cinema at like 11 a.m. on a Monday morning. So I think it really depends on where you go because if I go to, um, if, if we're allowed to name cinemas, if I go to Crown during the day, it's empty. There's quite often just me in the cinema. But if I do the same thing on the outskirts of Melbourne, there'll be 20 or 30 people in the cinema. So I think it really depends on where you are and what time you're going. Talking about Compromat, 127 minutes M rated. Spy thriller, harrowing tale involving a Russian-based director of Alliance Francaise. And that's a sort of a French language service. Now, a few months ago, the character... Matu Roussel, played by Georges Lelouch, moved with his wife Alice, Alyssa Lasowski, and their young daughter from France to Siberia to take up this new role at Alliance Francaise. He's a considerate and caring father. His marriage, though, is on shaky ground after his wife cheated on him. But nothing can prepare him for what is about to go down. Because one night, without warning, the Russian secret police barred to his home and he's thrown into jail on trumped up charges of disseminating child porn and molesting his daughter. Now, that's the start of his ordeal, which includes being bashed and escaping with the help of the daughter-in-law of a high-ranking Russian agent. I, I should give you some context. Compromat, that word comes from well, the Russian KGB slang, and it's short for compromising material. So in other words, this is where the trumped-up charges come in. Roussel's die is cast with his liberal attitude to the arts and not reading the fact that the Russians view things differently to the French. The movie is loosely based on fact. It was actually freely inspired by a true story that happened to a Frenchman living in Russia. The, the film drips with tension and intrigue. I, I thought it was one of the better examples of the, the genre, the, the spy thriller genre, thanks to the compelling writing of Carrie Ferry and the director, who's also the co-writer, Jerome Saal. I, I thought that um, Lelouch is a, a very agreeable character in the lead, decent bloke, caught up in a horrible situation, and he channels a naive, everyday man. I thought that, that was a good role for Phil. It was a nice one. And then... Can you, can you see that, Peter? Uh, yes, you're breaking up a little bit, but uh, yeah, no, I've just, I just heard you. It is a very efficient uh, and well-made thriller based, as you say, partly on a true story. Um, it, it, it shows you the Kafkaesque world of uh, people who are caught up with the Russian secret service um, and uh, how accusations can be made, um, in most cases untrue accusations, uh, in the furthering of the state and of the the issue of spying and uh, and who's in control. It it really is a, an interesting film. It was great to see also Joanna Kulik in well, that's the film. What I was, that was what I was getting at, Peter. I really like the narrative arc given 
to the helper of uh, the character uh, Matu Roussel, and and that is the character played by Joanna Kulik, who plays Svetlana. This is a woman all too aware of the tactics employed by the secret police. And while Roussel is far more open and effusive, Svetlana keeps her cards close to her chest. And in spite of that, she's determined to do all she can to help Roussel. And in so doing, she risks her own safety more than once. She's got this love-hate relationship with her physically and psychologically scarred husband, Sasha Rostov, who's a victim of the war in Chechnya. And uh, there's kind of, there's a very mercenary character, is there not, in terms of his father, uh, played by Michael Gore, who's a federal security agent who Svetlana detests. Now, I thought the characterizations of these thoroughly unlikable types, he's one of them. And the other one is the enforcer Sagarin, uh, played by Igor uh, Jijikin, I thought both of them were really, I mean, it's the, it's the expectation, let's be honest, in a movie like this, but I thought they played them very, very well. Did you? Oh, I absolutely agree. It, it, it's very well cast uh, and it's a tense uh, sort of film leading up to the uh, the, the last uh, 20 or so minutes, which are, are really quite impressive. It's a, it, it's a paranoid thriller. Um, it's very well produced and uh, and I'm not surprised that it wasn't actually shot in Russia. Uh, Neither <laughs> am I. It was shot in Lithuania, as it turns out. Well, I mean, it, it, quite frankly, the director spoke about that and said it was just too dangerous. Yes. And I mean, obviously, <laughs> you're making a movie that's uh, condemning the Russians to shoot it in Russia uh, if they get wind of it. Um, I'm not sure that that's the smartest thing to do. So ha- having said that, uh, it really does capture that sort of jackboot mentality uh, and, and you know, the, the continuing push to bring down the, the central character, Roussel. Uh, I, I, one of the things I found is that even though it pushed past the two-hour ba- barrier, I thought the time passed quickly, Peter. I, I agree. It it was so well constructed that I didn't notice the time at all. And uh, and I suppose what the film also reflects is the idea that if you're caught up in a totalitarian state, that uh, there is really no escape, or most likely no escape. It's uh, you're in a hiding for nothing in terms of uh, trying to prove your innocence uh, with a, a situation where control is out of your control. It's fascinating also if you think about it in the context of, you know, when Australians go and travel overseas and then they get caught up in invidious circumstances abroad, and this happens, unfortunately, all too regularly, and then we call upon the embassy or they call upon the embassy and all sorts of groups are set up online and and whatever, and the response most of the time seems to be that diplomatically behind the scenes we're doing what we can but all too often it is, well, you're, you're governed by the laws of another country the moment you step offshore. And in this case, uh, the French are particularly weak, as is represented here, uh, and, and are not. it's kind of like, uh, oh, well, we, we take the casualty uh, because uh, we don't want to offend the Russians. That, that's kind of the attitude, isn't it? Exactly right. And it wouldn't just be the French that would be compromised uh, in uh, a situation like Compromat. Uh, certainly there'll be other countries in a similar situation. I mean, uh, we hear about Finland, we hear about a whole range of countries, uh, Ukraine being a good example, where uh, it's so easy to be compromised and to be caught up in conflict. 
Were you familiar with the term compromat before the movie, by the way? No, I had to look it up. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, Dave, what about you? Was that a term you'd, you'd heard previously? Um, I'd heard it used in other spy thrillers just because I, I do like to watch Russian cinema and that. Um, but I, I just found this to be one of those movies where it's every tourist's worst nightmare. Um, mm -hmm. I found my heart sank when that police raid happened because as someone who travels quite frequently, it's something that you always worry about. And I have been in a situation in Malaysia where a police officer suddenly turned around to me and asked me, um, did I want to tell him about the gun that I had? Um, and he was carrying an M16. And you do, you start to think about, am I going to spend 30 years in some prison? Um, but I thought this film was really good in the sense that it showed how defenseless and helpless you are when you're put in that situation, how you need people in that country to help you. I did like that part about the... Um, the embassy as well not helping because I think that is kind of something we're seeing more of here in Australia even this week with the question being asked in Parliament why the Australians aren't doing more to free Julian Assange because as one of the points was made, would we be so reluctant to help Julian Assange as a country if that was Russia that he was in and not America? Um, so there's all questions like that and of course we're seeing it with a, a basketball star in, a, in Russia at the moment where she's just been sentenced to some ridiculously long um, sentence yes. just for having a joint on her, which she says wasn't hers. So, yeah, we're seeing it. It's, it's a controversial film in that sense, but I think it's an important film to see just how quickly things can go south in other countries. One question, I suppose, for you here, when do you, because everybody, of course, denies they're a spy, and I'm not suggesting that he is a spy or he isn't a spy. People need to come along and see it for themselves. But I, I wonder, in a circumstance, because clearly spying goes on quite extensively, especially between the Russians and the Americans, but I would imagine between other countries as well, including potentially France and England and, and so on. So uh, how do you determine what's fair game in international espionage, Dave? How, how do you get that, that right? Yeah, that's a million-dollar question. One of my favourite TV shows of all time was Spooks, um, the British series, and, and that discussion is quite often held in that show, as particularly if someone gets discovered from within MI5 in another country. Uh, there's always that thing in the show where it's like, oh, well, the other country's done the wrong thing. It's like, well, you did have a spy in their country that was getting uh, political and, and government uh, documents. So, yeah, it's an interesting question, but uh, this is based on a true story as well. Yeah, like, well I mean, it's loosely, sorry. I should say it's loosely based on a true story. Yeah, so, of course, France is not going to admit if he was a spy, but I think mm. you have to assume watching this film that he wasn't a spy. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's, it's an interesting one, though, because uh, you've also got the double agent situation, too. Which I'm not suggesting yeah. that's in in this one, but uh, I mean, I'll, look, I like a really good spy thriller. I think that this one is a bit really a good example of the breed, and uh, it's engaging from the get go, and and you kind of he grows as the, the central character grows, doesn't he, Dave? As as the movie progresses, because in a sense he's very naive to begin with, very much so, but he he has to really grow. Other it, just to try and survive, because yeah. otherwise you're going to be swallowed up in a system where 
you know, beatings and compromise and, you know, any excuses can be made up and you don't need to have an excuse. And it, this is why you, know, you think about what goes on, especially, I suppose, as it's reported here in Russia and also China or maybe China and Russia, and suddenly people disappear. So in other words, y- you might make an outlandish comment on social media in Australia and people can ho- hold you to account for it, but over there you suddenly can find yourself no longer. You, you, you'd be you'd be disappear, disappearing without trace. And, you know, it's rather, to me, it's extraordinary that here we are in 2022 and the, the levels of sophistication in terms of getting rid of people are, more, are stronger than they've ever been. I mean, we're no longer in the Cold War, but uh, we're, we're more advanced in terms of the methods that people use to either rightly or wrongly expose somebody. And I suppose all of those issues were coming into my mind when I was sitting there watching Compromat. So it's obviously doing its job. It's um, it's a movie I hope a lot of people will see, to be honest. I, it's, you know, I'm not sure. I know it's, you know, some people are going to resist it simply because you have to read it, but uh, I hope that that doesn't prevent from from going along and, and uh, attending a Compromat. What are you going to give it out of 10, Dave? Look, I'm going to give this one 8 out of 10. I did really like it. And I was just going to say, one of the things I found I really liked about this film, and I think it's something that Hollywood would have changed, is with the casting of Matai, he is a guy that you can relate to. He's an everyday guy. This is not mm. Tom Cruise or Matt Damon trying to outrun Russian police. This is a guy that's just like you and I um, in that situation. And I think that makes this film even more powerful. I agree, the everyday man, but, you know, once again, the everyday man who grows from the experience because he has to, otherwise he'd be he'd be a goner. What do you think, Peter? Yeah, I, look, I really liked it. I, I was uh, reminded of Navalny, the documentary oh, yes. about the Russian who was poisoned and uh, et cetera. Uh, I mean, it's it's really well shot, uh, Compromat. The, the drab exteriors and interiors are really well lit. Uh, so the look of the film gives you that tension to begin with. Yes, I liked it. Uh, very good film, 7 out of 10. And I'm giving it seven and a half to eight. So we're in similar territory. A movie that we were going to talk about this week and we will now uh, which opened uh, a week or so back, She Said, which is two hours, nine minutes, 129, M-rated as well. The dramatic downfall of Hollywood heavyweight producer Harvey Weinstein is what this is all about, captured through the tireless efforts of a couple of New York Times investigative reporters. And we're talking about Jody Cantor, played by Zoe Kazan, and Megan Tui, Kerry Mulligan. While focusing primarily on their endeavours to reach out to those who were in Weinstein's orbit, the film also plots the personal lives of those two journos, Jodie Cantor and Megan Tui. Quickly clear what a low-life sexual predator Weinstein has been for decades. I mean, that that's established early on. But payoffs, non-disclosure agreements and entrenched fear mean that for a considerable period no one that the reporters speak with is willing to put their name to the atrocities that Weinstein committed. Supported by their executive, the two journos, Cantor and Tui, continue their endeavours regardless. They, they talk to women who were traumatised and shamed by their experiences, by Weinstein's vile actions. 
by his seemingly insatiable thirst for power and control. Among them are noted actors and those behind the scenes looking to build a career in the film industry. Some kept the truth from their nearest and dearest. And I remember thinking at the time that this shocking story broke, for real, not as a movie, how could Weinstein have gotten away with what he was doing for so long? Because clearly people had to support it for that to continue because there were people who were privy to it. And those reflections really did come flooding back while watching She Said, which opens in Ireland in 1992, moves to New York City in 2016. So it spans those two timeframes. The movie reminded me of the journalistic expose Spotlight that came out in 2015. And many years before that, All the President's Men, which made such a big splash in the mid-70s, 76. The screenplay is by Rebecca Lenkiewicz, who did the great movie, the black and white film Ida, among others. And it's based on a book that was written by the two uh, actors, uh, by the two journos, Cantor and Tui. Uh, and the direction is from Maria Schrader. I, I'm, I thought I was really surprised, not surprised, I was impressed by Zoe Kazan. Quite a revelation as the empathetic Cantor, and Mulligan's always excellent, really assured as Tui. But if anything, Kazan is the lead lead actor here. Uh, the secondary plays, including Patricia Clarkson and Andre Brower, they're cast as the uh, as Cantor and Tui's supportive bosses. I, I thought they did a, a pretty fine job as well. So too Jennifer Earle, who fills the role of Laura Madner, mother of three, about to undergo surgery, and also one of Weinstein's victims. And in terms, the one thing that I, I must admit I was a bit uh, surprised by you only had one real actor playing herself, and that was Ashley Judd. Um, I, I'm kind of obviously, I presume they approached others and they decided not to be part of it. Dave, what did you think of She Said? Look, I found this to be an interesting film because it's the industry that I work in newspapers and and radio, and I find, I find those kinds of films really interesting to see what went on behind the scenes. But I don't know if this film was as powerful as Spotlight. I thought that Spotlight had a power to it where it was really, really intense when you're watching the film. I don't think she said had that intensity. Having said that, though, I did think it was really well acted and I really, really enjoyed um, learning more about this case because I think in Australia, some of the, the finer points of the case were hidden, which we got to see in this film. I'm with you. I would like to have seen more of the actresses um, play themselves. Mm. Um, I think that would have added a real power to the film and it would have really spoken out that these women are, are ready to tell their story and ready to, to get justice for what happened, for what Weinstein um, did. I think some scenes in this film worked really well and you are on the edge of your seat um, when the two journalists, Jodie and Megan, are on that verge of a breakthrough and they just need someone to tell their story or someone to give them the evidence that they require. I think that part of the film works really well. I just don't think it kept that intensity up right throughout the film in the same way that Spotlight did. Now, I think it really showed its time as well. We 
we mentioned with Compromat that the time passed quickly. I don't think the time did pass quickly here. And I, I knew too much about it. In, in other words, okay, the nuances are, and, and personal lives were reflected upon the personal lives of the two journos. I, I totally agree with you. I was absorbed by Spotlight, thought it was an extraordinary film. I don't think this is the extraordinary film that Spotlight is. It's it's a it's a decent film. By the way, it, it tanked in opening in the United States. Does that surprise you, Dave? Um, yes and no. Um, I've got the feeling in America that this is the story that people don't want to hear because they, they're still trying to pretend that this didn't happen, especially in the entertainment circles. Um, I'm not sure how much press coverage it got in America. I know a few people have said to me that they thought that the film was being ignored by some outlets because of the Weinstein links kind of thing. So look, uh, it's one of those movies where I think it probably would have been better off in America being on a, a streaming platform, but um, it also had some pretty stiff competition when it came out in America as well. Well, it's very heavily dialogue-driven, isn't it, as yep. you can imagine a film like this would be. Lots of names are introduced, people are spoken with. So, in other words, you do need to concentrate if you're going to sort of get all of the nuance. Uh, it, it's very detail-rich, which um, I think is what helps lead to that two-hour, nine-minute running time. I, I, I wouldn't have minded that being paired back a, a tad, especially as Weinstein's demise, I reckon, is familiar territory to those that followed the story. It was only a few short years ago. And of course, while this is going on, there are more court cases and uh, Weinstein is facing uh, a much longer sentence if found guilty. Uh, so, I mean, although generally suitably and understandably emotional uh, on... Uh, on an odd occasion, I felt that the delivery headed down a bit of a melodramatic path. Did you notice that, Dave, or not? Yeah, I did. There was That's what I meant before when I said that there wasn't um, that intensity throughout the film. Some of the scenes almost felt like it was going into soapy territory, whereas I wanted to see this to be a hard-hitting documentary. It was one of those docu uh, not sorry documentary film. I wanted to see this be one of those films that that really exposed what happened behind the scenes. And for most of it, it just gave you the information that we already knew. Um, so I think that was the, the weakness yes. of this film, that some scenes did feel almost soap-like without that intensity of a, of a thriller, which, it, which rightfully it should have been. Well, I mean, there's no mistaking the film's intent, highlighting the difficulty of nailing, exposing, nailing and exposing, I should say, Weinstein for the predator that he was. Um, so, I mean, OK, it delivers on that score. But, Peter, I think it could have been better. I, I don't agree. I was actually quite mesmerised by the film because it, it traversed some very difficult legal issues and they had to be very careful in the way that various women were depicted, especially having to change names because some careers were still in the balance. Uh, so it, I'm not surprised that only Ashley Judd was willing to uh, lend her name to the film as being one of the, the victims of Weinstein and of the whole uh, early 
early Me Too movement. I actually was quite impressed by the film because it, it was very clinical. I mean, obviously, a film like Spotlight, which also deals with investigative journalism, had a more emotion emotionality attached to it because it dealt with pedophile priests. And, uh, and that was uh, quite significant and it was proven and there was lots of evidence. Uh, and uh, the gathering of that was so important in uh, that film uh, as the way it was depicted. In um, She Said, it was more complex than that. And uh, the two investigative journalists uh, had to spend a fair bit of time cajoling, talking to various women. Will, uh, would they be willing to go public? Would they be willing to reveal uh, something that could be detrimental to their own careers? So uh, I, I found it actually quite riveting because it documented something that had to be documented even though it was in the middle of a, a legal minefield. And Maria Schrader, who directed the film, uh, has directed this. She's a German filmmaker who's now crossed over to Hollywood. She has really uh, done a great job with the, the clinical um, investigative exposure that she gives to the two journalists who are investigating all of this and to document things in a very succinct and clear sort of way. I was actually very impressed by this film. I really enjoyed it um, for what it was trying to do and say, despite its uh, legal minefield. Yeah, look, I don't agree with you. I, I, I really think that they they took they, it, it was a bit too dry at times. I found now, I mean, because it it's kind of like the nuts and bolts work that you need to do as a journo. And I mean, you know, you, you need to make a lot of phone calls to to get somebody who's prepared to go onto the record and so on. Now that's fine. But I mean, and, and and we saw that. But after a while, I just found that that it, it laboured in in that sort of domain. And there've been a number of movies. We've, we've already referenced a couple of them, but there've been a number of other movies as well that deal with journalism that I think makes it more exciting than what she said did. I don't think it's a bad film, but I suppose I expected more of it than what what, what I received. So I'm going to give it a seven out of ten. What about you, Dave? Um, I'm giving it six out of ten. I thought there could have been a, a lot more done with the screenplay to have made this film more intriguing. And there's even elements that I know about the case that aren't revealed in this film either, which I, I found kind of surprising. Yeah, oh, really? Uh, is there something you want to share there? Um, not really, okay, <laughs> um, for legal enough, reasons. No. But, um, yeah, yeah, just things that people I know who have worked on the inside have revealed that have been mentioned in the court case, but, yeah, weren't mentioned in this film. No, fair enough. And, and Peter, so you're going to be the high mark here. Yes, I was quite impressed by the film. It documents a, a very important part of the, uh, the early stages of the Me Too movement. Uh, eight out of ten from me. Wow. Okay. I'm high score. I, I just wanted to briefly touch on this. I know this has been out for a few weeks, but one that really again, disappointed me. And I, I usually like this kind of fare, but I, I can't say that I was particularly enamoured with this. Strange World, the Disney film. Uh, have, have both of you seen that or not? Yes. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, I mean, it hardly sets the world on fire. It's basically, in very short uh, form, it's about a family of adventurers, three three generations. Uh, they're called the Clades, C-L-A-D-E-S, and they they live in a close knit community, and the if you like the the father uh, uh, is the one who's the the grand adventurer. The, the, the when I say close knit community, 
it's surrounded by mountains, but nobody knows what's the other side of the mountain. This um, and and the the father sort of uh, is very gung ho about going and exploring and finding uh, new opportunities for this close knit community. But um, his son uh, ends up discovering a, a rather important natural resource that glows, and he becomes a farmer rather than an adventurer. And uh, and and his father, who continues on his adventures, is is lost to him and to the rest of the community. And and we sort of move ahead twenty five years. So initially, when father and son go go out on this fact finding mission, that the father leaves the son behind. The the, the son discovers this um, this glowing substance, which which helps uh, the community to continue down there. The route that they're on, and uh, I mean, it's a relatively straightforward arc. And then, then you've got uh, the the son of the you've got the you've got then the grandfather, the father, and then you've got the son who who himself is a teenager. And uh, it's about the differences and and the sameness between them, and and what brings them all together. Now, it's got very much an environmental message, and by the way, it's got a, an inventive twist, which is great. But I, I mean, I. Whilst I understand and I applaud the film's environmental proclivities, uh, I just thought the film had a number of flat patches and notwithstanding the surprise that I referenced, which was that inventive twist, I wasn't sold on the ending either and I just thought it was strangely bland for a Disney movie, um, I, you know, notwithstanding all the supposed action that's taking place. I mean, they try to build it up and build it up, but I, I just didn't particularly warm to it. Did you, Peter, or not? I actually really liked it. it it's an original it's Disney the animation. Time, the second time you're wrong today, it's good. Uh, thank you, Alex. Um, it's it, it's an attempt by Disney to do something different, something original, to look at uh, generations of men in families that have expectations attached to them and, of course, the environmental theme that you mentioned. I think it, it actually is quite clever in many respects and has a... A clever very good storyline. How's it clever? Clever because of the inventive way it deals with the story, with the exploration, with the the grandfather, father, son sort of relationship, which. Uh, uh, all so you're not talking clever because of the twist, which I I think is clever. But but other than that, I thought it was pretty straightforward. No, the whole thing was quite clever because it is not a standard Disney animation and I think that's why it's been criticised uh, in the US and hasn't done well because it doesn't fit a, a template that some people seem to think a, a Disney animation should be. So I, I really liked it. I think it's, it was quite it's a, interesting a, you say a different that film. It's interesting you say that to me because I don't think it's got anything to do with the fact that it doesn't uh, fit the template. I think it's got to do with the fact that it's boring. Yeah, well, I mean, I, We'll agree to disagree. <laughs> uh, what about you, Dave? Because I mean, we, we'll have to discuss uh, the the elephant in the room in a moment, which is the the um, showcasing of a, um, of a of a gay relationship in a rather than make. I mean, the, the people who are going to be seeing this movie are youngsters who may not have even been talked about uh, by their parents, may not have even spoken with them about their sexuality, and this. Um, this pushes it a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, look, I didn't mind that. My only criticism of that part of the film was that I thought the grandfather's reaction to finding out that his grandson was gay did not fit with the character. Um, the character was so 
macho and with the way he treated his own son, I didn't think that reaction was was natural to how he would have reacted. Um, the only thing I could imagine, and Disney probably didn't set this up very well in the screenplay, the only way I think the grandfather would have reacted that way would have been if being gay is is it's common in that um, world that they've set up. If yeah, that's the only thing I can think of that they didn't but, explain. But what about but what about the the whole concept that uh, you're going to get kids that are seven and eight and nine years of age who haven't even been spoken about in terms of their sexuality? Is that something that we should be, you know, should we, we be hitting people over the head with this or should it be a bit more subtle? I don't think they're hitting anyone over the head with it in the sense that you've just got a gay character there. Like it's it's not something. I think it's fantastic. Don't get me yeah. wrong. I think it's great that they, you know, we're introducing greater diversity, that there's gay characters. I think that's absolutely fine. I just don't know whether the way they did this. What did you think, Peter, of that subject matter? I, I, I thought I thought it was fine. I, I, I think we've seen a few other animations from Disney and a few others elsewhere that have uh, um, been diverse and have also dealt with uh, subtly gay characters. Yes. I'm all for diversity. I'm talking about at an appropriate age. Well, this is, is not a thing. film for this is not a film for very young children. It is rated PG, and it is for somewhat older children that would be able to understand the, the complex issues that are developed in the narrative uh, and the storyline. So I did not, not, did not mind that at all. I'll throw a real-life situation to you, and my son's older now, uh, but this is, this is what happened a, a number of years ago, and it's, it's kind of an interesting one because I, from my point of view, the moment we don't talk about gayness, the moment we don't talk about diversity is when we know that you know, there genuinely is diversity and there genuinely isn't a, a focus on the subject matter. And I, I, I long for that sort of time because I think that's that's highly desirable. I'll, I'll go back uh, a number of years and my son was still at school and they had an excursion and my son came to me quite distressed. Real life situation. I wonder what you guys would have done. Okay. So and I know neither of you are parents, so this is more, more a judgment call, but I'm curious. So he basically said, Dad, we've been asked to go to a to meet some a group of people in a gay environment, and I don't feel comfortable going. I'm I'm happy this he wasn't seven or eight or nine, he was probably about fourteen or fifteen, and he did not want to go. And I was, you know, placed into a rather awkward position because this was a school excursion. Now, uh, one of the ways that you can learn about what you're not is to go along and speak to people and and hear from them and, and so on. So I was torn in terms of what advice I should be giving my son. What what would you what do you think about that sort of thing where you're forced into an environment based on a school excursion that may be outside your comfort level? I think you have to put this into context because you don't know what school has done to prepare the students for whatever excursion or visit that they were going to make, how much research or uh, background was made, how much discussion uh, happened in the classroom. I mean, this That's is a true. whole contextual situation that needs to be explored further. Um, and I must say, if, if your son was 14 or 15, 
2015, I'm a little surprised at his uh, somewhat negative reaction. Uh, if he was eight or nine, okay. 14 mm. or 15, surely he's experienced a bit of the world by now. Oh, yep. I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, interesting. What about you, Dave? Oh, look, I think it's, I agree with Peter. It's one of those situations where you need to sit down and, and talk about it. I mean, we we saw cases um, at our high school when we were um, doing Australians at War where some of the um, students didn't want to go to different um, uh, museums around Melbourne because it was going to bring back memories that their grandparents and their parents went through. So... I think it's one of those times when well, you... Well, in a situation like that, I, I, I feel that they should not have to go. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean. You should never make a child feel uncomfortable. But I think also at the same time, it's important for um, children and to, to learn as well. And sometimes that does mean going outside your comfort zone. What, what did you think of Strange World as a movie, Dave? Look, my biggest issue with this film was that it was... Um, very similar to Planet 51 and also Journey to the Centre of the Earth. I found that it borrowed heavily from both of those films. I did like the twist in the film, but I thought the real weakness with this film was it was one of those films where I felt like for a majority of the plot line, I'd seen it all before. I yes. guessed where the film was going to end up. I didn't pick the, the, um, the big twist, I'll admit that, but I did pick most of the way through what was going to happen next just because we've seen it so often. So I think it's an important film for Disney to have made, but at the same time it deserved better because it was such a bland plot that we've seen before. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I, do you, what about the ending? I, I, just, I just didn't do it for me. I, I, I mean, it was all about technology and then it wasn't about technology kind of thing and then they had to find another way and whatever. I just didn't – I thought that was a bit unusual. Yeah, it did feel like there was a little bit of a preaching there by the screenwriter-director basically saying that um, perhaps as a, a world we need to go back to more simpler times, um, which, yeah, that you can do that, but I think you need to be careful to make sure that you do it in such a way that it works. But I think the really telling sign with this film was we all saw it in an environment where there was kids and kids lost interest in this film very, very early yes, on, they were running they around throwing popcorn. Yes. Um, that's, as someone who's not a parent, that's one of my telling signs. When I see a kid's film with kids around, is does it hold the interest of the kids? And this film certainly did not. Mm. Score out of 10, Dave? Um, I'm giving it four out of 10. Yeah, so it's a fail. I'm giving it a five, which is a bare pass. Peter, the generous one? Yes, the generous one. I, there's much to admire in Strange World. I, I liked it. For, um, it's not for very young kids, I agree, and it's uh, 7 out of 10 from me. Oh, my God. Uh, I think you've said it all. There's much to admire in a strange world. I think there's much to admire in Peter's world. Is that what we're saying, Peter? <laughs> to explore it further. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. No, it's uh, uh, very, yes, I, I found it rather fascinating, Uh the last couple of movies in terms of your views. And that's the reason we have you on, because you are obtuse. Is that is that a descriptor? Is that is it an appropriate descriptor? Well, it, it's interesting to be described as a triangle with an obtuse angle, but I like being yeah. there. I didn't say I didn't say isosceles. Uh, all right. Now, talk, <laughs> talking of that, we've got limited time. So I'm going to I'm going to give you a simple act of kindness, Peter. 
which is which is the name of a play at Red Stitch. Now, oh. Sophia, played by Lou Wall, has been desperate to get into the property market for some time. And so it is that yet again she puts the hard word on her father, Tony, played by Joe Petruzzi, trying to guilt him into going 50-50 with her on an apartment that she's found. He's actually far from impressed. Small, doesn't have a view, is out of the way. Tony and his wife, who is Julie, uh, that's Sophia's mother, played by Sarah Sutherland, they live in Stonington, right? So that's sort of Malvern area. And and this place is in Laverton, so it's across the bridge. And the, the pitch to Tony is going badly when Sophia drops a bombshell. She tells her dad that she's engaged to a man who is basically on the same page as her, a guy called Greg, played by Kisror Jones Shukur. Collectively, they've managed to get their hands on $125,000, and all they need now is to convince Tony to pitch in the other half. The truth is, though, that Greg's not actually engaged to Sophia. They're just friends, and he's gay. She only used him as a ruse to get her father to give over the money. So what could possibly go wrong? Absolutely everything. Uh, Tony hasn't exactly made good investments in the past. Unbeknown to him, he's about to lose his job. He hasn't told his wife how much that he's actually dipped in to help their daughter, and his wife's mother is further draining their limited resources. And now Sophia and Greg's new home that he has helped buy has developed concrete cancer. Oh, my golly. So it's set during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, and, and that it plays a part in some of the things that are said. It's a slapstick comedy by Ross Mueller about the pitfalls of real estate and family and combining family and real estate. I like the setup. There are a number of hilarious interchanges between the characters. The dialogue served to heighten the tension. It was fun, but I felt let down by the second half, which appeared uh, too obtuse. There's that word again, Peter, for my liking. It, it went from funny to quite bizarre and laboured, and I, I did tire of the second act, which felt stretched. thought Lou Wall was the pick of the talent. She milked the manipulation and revelled in the role of parenting their parents or her parents, and she bounced well off the other characters, was the glue that bound them together. Directed by Peter Horton, simple act of kindness, has the makings of a good comedy, but it falters, and it's at Red Stitch until the 18th of December, a simple act of kindness. And talking of that, I will let you go, Peter. That's my simple act of kindness. Thank you for participating today, and Greg King as well. We'll do it all again next week on First on Film and Entertainment. <laughs>